since this study was exploring a tension between two areas of government policy with implications for the welfare of children. On the one hand, the policy in immigration uh, policy uh, to uh, exclude uh, many people from access to welfare benefits, including families, in order to help manage migration and reduce public expenditure. So that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the statutory duty on local authorities to safeguard children in need under the Children Act uh, 1989. And we were looking over a period of 18 months at the challenges to which that tension gives rise, challenges for local authorities and for the, the children and families concerned. We're also looking at the role of the Home Office and of the voluntary sector, who are also key players in what we found as a somewhat, at times, dysfunctional uh, system. And uh, the evidence we'll present to you suggests to us that the uh, children involved in these families may not always be having uh, their needs met as the law requires. We set out, as Jonathan will tell you, to find out well, who are these families, why are they in need, uh, what needs do they present when they get to the local authority, what explains the variations in local authority responses to them, and then the bottom line are the, the needs of the children being met. Uh, Jonathan's going to report on what we found, and I'll come back in at the end to, to say something about the outcomes and possible uh, ways forward in terms of policy. Okay, thank you, sir. So in order to answer these questions, uh, we adopted a multi-method approach. Uh, we mapped out the relevant law and policy uh, based on desk research of policy papers, the texts of uh, primary legislation and case law. Uh, we then undertook uh, two surveys. The first was in two parts uh, and, uh, and was a survey of local authorities, all local authorities in England and Wales that have children's services departments, which amounts to 174 in total. Uh, we received 137 responses to that survey asking very basic questions about the number of families that were being supported under Section 17 um, uh, in the financial year 2012-13. That was a 79 response rate. Um, we then uh, sent a detailed questionnaire to the first 55 local authorities that responded to that basic survey uh, and had supported some families under Section 17 in that financial year. We followed up with the selected sample until a broad cross-section of those authorities were represented in respect of four criteria. Geographical location, uh, the number of supported NRPF families, the existence of a dedicated NRPF service within the local authority, and party political control. And this method gave us a broad sample of local authorities based on multiple criteria, uh, with data coming from 24 local authorities supporting 878 families and 1,561 children. That survey looked in much more depth at the profile of the families and the nature of the services that were being provided by local authorities to those families. We also did a survey of the voluntary sector that was an, a SurveyMonkey online survey during October and November 2013 that targeted voluntary sector organisations that were providing advocacy and other services to NRPF families. We then did 92 uh, semi-structured uh, interviews in eight local authority research sites and one dispersal location where one of the local authorities was dispersing its families. Uh, and those eight local authorities were chosen to explore their assessment processes and the services that they provided, um, the experience of families uh, of seeking to access support and also receiving support, and also the support provided by advocates. Um, 
Before going in to present the findings of our empirical research, I'm just going to outline some of the key elements of the legal and policy framework, including some, some key observations that helped contextualise some of the things that we found out. So Section 17 of the Children Act uh, 1989 is the key legislative provision on which this study focuses. It places a duty on local authorities to safeguard and promote the welfare of children within their area who are in need, and so far is consistent with that duty to promote the upbringing of such children by their families by providing a range and level of services appropriate to those children's needs. Uh, in general, Section 17 is used to support children uh, in need due to disability or in situations of abuse or neglect, family dysfunction or domestic violence. But the Act also specifies that services can include the provision of accommodation and financial uh, assistance. And crucially for this study, case law has confirmed that a destitute child is a child in need for the purposes of Section 17. And it is this element of Section 17 that this study focuses on, that is, the accommodations and financial services uh, that meet the needs of destitute children whose parents cannot access welfare benefits. The broader context of the Children Act uh, was that it was a landmark piece of legislation that was intended to shift social work practice away from the prevention of risk and towards promoting the welfare of children within their families, uh, seeking to limit what was perceived to be the state's excessive interference in family life through the, remo through, through the removal of children at risk and uh, wherever possible to keep families together. There is therefore a high threshold set for family separation and being unable to meet the material needs of children because a family is destitute is unlikely to meet that threshold. So a level of support under Section 17 necessarily therefore extends to support to their parents. No recourse to public funds is an immigration policy and it affects a broad group of people who are subject to immigration control, including people in the UK on visas, asylum seekers, refused asylum seekers, overstayers and illegal entrants. It, essentially, it precludes people from accessing a range of welfare benefits, public funds being the legal term for a range of welfare benefits that are defined under paragraph 6 of the immigration rules. Uh, mobile EU citizens don't have no recourse to public funds because they're not subject to immigration control. However, because their entitlement to public funds are restricted in other ways, uh, we include them in this study and because they may eventually become eligible for Section 17 support. Asylum seekers and refused asylum seekers have no recourse to public funds, but where they are eligible for accommodation and financial support, that's administered directly by the Home Office. Section 17 of the Children Act is not a public fund, and therefore families with no recourse to public funds are not excluded from it by that particular policy. And that means that a family with a destitute dependent child who has no recourse to public funds and is not entitled to asylum support because they're not asylum seekers, may be entitled to long-term Section 17 support from the local authority, which can include the provision of accommodation and subsistence. Uh, in 2002, the government sought to restrict access to Section 17 support to four groups of people that have no recourse to public funds. Mobile EU citizens, people granted refugee status in other EU countries, refused asylum seekers who failed to comply with removal directions, and people unlawfully in the UK, which includes overstayers. However, local authorities can't refuse Section 17 support if this would breach their rights under the European Convention of Human Rights or under EU law if they are EU citizens. When families are excluded, by, when families are excluded from Section 17 by this particular legislation from 2002, local authorities must consider whether withholding support would constitute a breach of their human rights or their rights under EU law, 
And this has given rise to the human rights assessment, one of the statutory assessments that social workers must undertake in these cases. Case law has established that there would be no breach of human rights if there's no legal or practical obstacle for the family to return. Immigration applications to the Home Office do constitute legal barriers to return. And for children and families with pending applications, local authorities must resort to their Section 17 duties in order to prevent a breach of human rights. However, where there are no legal or practical barriers to return, social workers might argue in a human rights assessment that a family can return to the parent's country of origin because no human rights breach would occur. But where a family refuses to return and there remains a destitute child in that local authority area, the Section 17 duty is likely to remain. Local authorities have no powers to enforce removal and successful discharge of Section 17 duties therefore relies on the Home Office to resolve the family's case through the immigration system, either through removal or the granting of status. So Section 17 effectively creates a parallel welfare system for the small number of families subject to the NRPF policy that become destitute. To understand how this has emerged and, as we shall see, has recently grown, there are a few observations that help to explain it. Firstly, the groups that are likely to fall under Section 17 have broadened. In 2012, we saw that the Home Office introduced the ability to grant limited leave to remain under certain immigration routes on the condition that families would have no recourse to public funds. That is, people being given longer-term status without access to welfare benefits. Zambrano carers, a group of people who are not from the EU but derive an EU right of residence from a person for whom they are a primary carer, were given rights of residence on the condition they would have no recourse to public funds, again longer-term status without access to welfare benefits, and most recently restricting the access of mobile EU citizens to public funds through stricter interpretation of free movement rules. Second, a considerable body of case law has in the most part uh, found that local authority uh, has interpreted local authority duties under Section 17 to this group of families quite broadly, and the courts have almost consistently ruled that it is local authorities rather than the Home Office that have responsibility to support these families. And thirdly, the needs of families within communities have evolved with greater numbers of people having an immigration status that brings with it varying rights and restrictions, and significantly welfare needs have increased as a result of the economic downturn, with fewer opportunities in the formal and informal job markets. So turning to the profile of the families and their welfare needs, uh, our survey found that 2,679 families and 4,644 children were being supported by 137 authorities, which we extrapolate to 3,391 families and 5,900 children across England and Wales. This represented a 19% increase on the previous financial year of 2011 and 12. Um, it's a small figure when compared to the overall number of children assessed to be in need in the same financial year, which is 378,600. And although not all of these children have a regular status, a very small, this is a very small proportion of the 120,000 irregular children estimated by our colleagues at Compass to be living in the UK as part of the No Way In, No Way Out study. Families are spread unevenly across the UK, with a particular concentration in London, of 61%, but urban authorities in other parts of the country also have high caseloads. So, for example, three of the ten authorities with the largest caseloads are outside London. The first figure here shows the distribution from the local authority supporting the most families to the local authority supporting the least. You can see that the families are concentrated in a small number of local authorities, and indeed 41 of the 137 were not supporting any families at all under Section 17. 
This figure shows uh, the distribution across the regions of England and of Wales, showing that 61% of supported cases were in London. In terms of immigration status, uh, low numbers of supported asylum seekers and refused asylum seekers is explained by the fact that they are generally supported by the Home Office, with local authorities more likely to support those on visas or mobile EU citizens. 63% of the families in these, in these authorities were overstayers. In terms of nationality, we see a pronounced trend. Jamaican and Nigerian nationals make up 51% of cases, with a smaller but significant number from Ghana and Pakistan. Significantly, 23% of the supported families had at least one British child. Uh, in terms of welfare needs, the overwhelming and most immediate need was accommodation, which was followed by food and clothing. We're talking about very fundamental but basic needs. And whilst safeguarding risks were strongly linked to material deprivation, families' vulnerability to exploitation was a frequent observation amongst local authority and voluntary sector interviewees. Prior to referral to the local authority, family circumstances drove them into situations of forced dependency on family, friends and community, and crucially men, mainly for accommodation. Some parents were engaging in formal work, which, which was considered to be risky and exploitative, including sex work. Parents' own accounts of their lives prior to referral, in some cases, supported these accounts. Referral was most often after a period of stability, often lasting years, uh, followed by deterioration of circumstances and culminating in a crisis. Um, almost all parent interviewees in our study had been previously working and self-supporting, many renting accommodation in the private rented sector, others staying with friends. They had been frequently engaged in formal work, mainly in the care and service sectors. Informal work was also prevalent, the most common forms of work being housework, sex work, hairdressing, cleaning and catering. In the years that families were living in their communities prior to their situation deteriorating, most were active members of the church and had contact with universal statutory services such as the schools and the NHS. And as their situation deteriorated, it was frequently these services that identified emerging welfare needs. For instance, a teacher noticing that children were hungry at school or a health visitor noticing that home circumstances were awry. And their role was possible because these are universal services, often outreach rather than drop-in based. And when local authorities identified to us the organisations that referred most families, these were, these were most often statutory services, the NHS, schools and other departments within the local authority. A significant number of referrals, however, were self-referrals, suggesting that many families find out about these services via contact in the community. So we set out in this research to understand why the practices of local authorities and what are the local practices of local authorities in relation to the assessment and provision of services under Section 17 and why they vary from one authority to the next. This assessment is broadly comprised of two stages, screening, firstly, and the statutory assessment, secondly, which includes the Section 17 assessment and, in some circumstances, the human rights assessment. The screening stage takes place at the point of referral, usually prior to the local authority engaging in the statutory assessment process. This is an incredibly difficult uh, process and local authorities are required to make difficult decisions in a very short space of time, often with limited information and evidence available to them on the family situation. Reasons given to advocates for rejection at screening stage, which were corroborated in some cases by the local authorities, suggests that decisions to deny support to a family at screening stage may sometimes be made without the evidence that could only be provided through the statutory assessment process. 
Indeed, we found reluctance in, in some authorities to engage in the statutory assessment process itself, seeking closure of cases at the screening stage. They reported that once they do engage in the statutory assessment, it's very difficult to demonstrate that there is no Section 17 duty to the family. In all the assessments, destitution was the key consideration, and the, uh, the considerations that local authorities took into account were relatively consistent. The crucial difference between local authorities was not the criteria for assessing destitution, but rather whether the local authority felt that the parent was credible or not some local authorities treating presenting evidence with greater suspicion. And in this, it exposes a focus of the assessment that is on the parent rather than on the child. Many of the local authorities, uh, many of the parents rather, were grateful for the support they received and felt that it had substantially improved their lives and the lives of their children. Uh, subsistence payments under Section 17 for those families that were accepted for support ranged considerably between local authorities. In all cases, they were below welfare benefit rates, below home office support for destitute asylum seekers, and even marginally below Section 4 hard case support rates. One local authority was providing as low as £23.30 per child per week and nothing for the parents. And for a family of two, with, one child, with two parents and one child, this would amount to a little over £1 per person per day. Uh, parent interviewees in receipt of this support expressed difficulties in meeting the basic needs of their children on the sum that they received, such as being unable to afford enough food, transport, <laughs> clothing and nappies. Local authorities in our research sites were providing accommodation uh, under Section 17 in two ways, either in B&B establishments or in the private rented sector, with established contractual arrangements with private landlords. Um, all local authority and advocate interviewees agreed that B&B accommodation was inappropriate, inadequate and expensive, with parent interviewers se interviewees saying that these facilities were cramped, isolated, dirty and with insufficient facilities to cook. Those, the experiences of those in the private rented sector were much more positive, although some still felt that the standard of accommodation was poor and that the flats were a significant distance from their children's schools. It was nevertheless felt to be more appropriate by parent, advocate and local authority interviewees, giving users more independence, particularly to cook fresh food and make better use of subsistence payments. Local authorities were also able to negotiate accommodation rates with landlords, often including utilities and council tax, making the process more efficient and less bureaucratic. In terms of explaining variation in practice, we identified three key factors. One clear factor was the var in variation between local authorities in our research sites was the impact of a family having support from a local voluntary sector organisation uh, and or a solicitor who could challenge the local authority's assessment and decision. Some local authorities had never received a legal challenge, whereas others were routinely receiving letters before action requesting assessments of need uh, for destitute families. And provision of the advocacy support was more available in some local authorities than in others. And it was evident that the strength of advocates was variable in terms of their capacity and knowledge and understanding of this complex area of law. The second factor was uh, that local authorities with dedicated NRPF teams were felt to be more internally consistent in their approach. That is a team that, uh, that has a dedicated uh, mandate to assess and provide services to these families. Having a clear point of contact within the local authority was felt to be helpful for advocates, making the referral process more efficient. And those working within dedicated NRPF teams had significant expertise in this area. However, having a dedicated team did not necessarily lead to consistency across local authorities. 
some local authorities having a more adult-focused assessment process and therefore a higher threshold to accessing Section 17 support and others having a significantly more child-focused approach. Local authorities with dedicated NRPF teams were procuring accommodation in the private rented sector and only using bed and breakfast placements as temporary measures uh, which was felt to be better for families and cheaper. And thirdly, a key factor influencing variation in practice is the differing perspectives of children's services staff on the role they feel they should play in relation to these families. This is evident in the way that ideas of deservingness inform their approach. Deservingness isn't a legal concept that local authorities can apply in their assessments, but rather a value-based conception of families that informs assessments. Certain assumptions were expressed in interviews and relative deservingness cited as justification for withholding support. And crucially, there was variation in the degree of attention given to children vis-à-vis -vis their parents in the assessment process, impacting the extent to which local, authority, local authorities had a child-focused or an adult-focused assessment process. While some authorities were focusing on the needs of the child in their assessment practices, others gave greater weight to the immigration status and credibility of parents in determining the family's eligibility for support. Thanks, Jonathan. So I'll just close by saying something about how the cases are resolved. Uh, we found that 71% of the families concerned had an application pending at the Home Office, and here the local authority obviously are dependent on the Home Office resolving that case in order for the family to come off the Section 17 uh, support. Uh, that period can actually be uh, quite a long one. We found that more than a third of uh, families were on Section 17 support for over a year, between one and three years, and more than 7% were actually dependent on the support for over three years, uh, which obviously has cost implications for the local authority. But when we look at how the cases are concluded, in the majority of them, the family are found uh, eligible to uh, be granted state as a right to stay. Um, and very, very few are removed um, or leave voluntarily. Um, that process, that length of time for the local authority colours the whole process and is part of the explanation for that resistance at the very beginning of the screening process uh, to allowing the cases through because of an expectation that they will be on the support for a long time. Uh, now, clearly, some of the cases are very complex for the Home Office to resolve, and often uh, refusals result in new applications or appeals. But there were consistent reports from across the local authorities and the voluntary sector and the families of uh, unexplained delays uh, during which they received no communication from the Home Office where it was very difficult to get anybody on the phone to get a reply to an email. So in many cases, this is the local authority trying to contact central government but not being able to get a uh, response. We uh, were unable, unfortunately, to uh, get interviews in the Home Office, so we can't, get, uh, we can't contextualise that as to why that might be the experience and what the Home Office uh, side, or if you like, of that story would be. But the delays in case handling do resonate with uh, the reports of the Chief Inspector of Immigration that uh, there are delays in other parts of the process. So our findings there don't uh, differ, really, from what has been found elsewhere. Uh, and uh, it is, however, being dealt with to an extent by a new system of local authorities joining with the Home Office uh, in a great database of cases called NRPF Connect. 
And there is some evidence that this is now, it's in the early stages, there are just the lo 30 local authorities that are part of it, but it is beginning to improve the communication between central and local government on these cases, uh, but not yet to the extent that the local authorities are confident it's going to resolve the issues, and of course uh, they have to pay to be part of it, and at the moment uh, it's only a minority of them that are part of it. What these long delays mean for the families is a sort of period of legal limbo, uh, of uncertainty, and for the local authorities, uh, it's an implication for their budget. So just to um, show you here, length of time on support, you can see that about a third are less than a year, but a, uh, but a, a considerable number are uh, on support for over, over a year and for longer. And this one shows you that uh, over half are granted uh, leave to remain and very few are removed. So uh, briefly, uh, how do we conclude? Uh, we would say that Section 17 is a vital safety net. It is a lifeline uh, for these children to lift them out of destitution, um, notwithstanding the fact that the provision of services and the uh, benefit support is minimal and lower than that, as Jonathan said, provided to any other uh, group of people. Uh, our concern about that would be that, of course, it's going on for a long period. There are implications there for uh, child poverty. And of course, we don't know what the implications are for those families who are turned away at the uh, pre-screening stage. The policy environment for local <coughs> authorities in this is very challenging. They don't get any uh, specific resources uh, to deal with these cases. And interestingly, the guidance on how to handle Section 17 cases makes no mention of them. So despite the fact that it, um, these are more complicated uh, to deal with, there is no specific guidance. And one of the recommendations is that it would be a good idea if the guidance did to take account of how local authorities have to deal with these case cases. Resolving the cases uh, rests with the Home Office, and there's clearly there is an issue there about how long it takes and communication, which needs to be addressed. Um, and finally, the voluntary sector are clearly playing a key role in providing support and indeed in advocacy, but there are issues there in relation to their capacity to do so, uh, particularly in parts of the country. On the back of the briefing, you'll see um, a final section which deals with uh, some suggestions on policy um, and uh, practice. Uh, we don't look at the whole issue of why the NRPF policy is used and its significance in managing migration and so on, but we do suggest that uh, when its use and further use is reviewed, consideration uh, should be made as to the implications it will have for families and uh, for children and local authority budgets before the decisions are taken, uh, and that the uh, Home Office needs to give some thought to reducing the time that it takes to resolve uh, these cases. Uh, Department of Education needs thinking about the statutory guidance and how to address uh, this particular dimension uh, of handling Section 17. Local authorities might want to consider having dedicated NRPF teams because it's of the value of having a focal point for expertise. And they may also want to think more about pre providing more assistance in relation to voluntary return. We found that they do that in relation to EU cases, but not uh, in relation to people from outside of the EU. Clearly, there's uh, issues about the NRPF Connect and whether expanding that is going to help resolve this issue. And finally, lack of capacity in the voluntary sector to provide advice and support. A particular issue for funders there, because sometimes it's the criteria for funding of the voluntary sector which constrain who they can help. Issues for funding, and I'm pleased to say the Hamlin Foundation has just given us a small grant to enable us to look at why there are issues in the voluntary sector there and what might be done about it.